Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and the Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 59 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I am pleased to welcome Darren DePoy, an astronomer at Texas A&M University in College Station. After receiving his PhD in astronomy from the University of Hawaii in 1987, for nearly two decades, DePoy was a professor and vice chair for instrumentation at the Ohio State University in Columbus. He has designed and built state-of-the-art optical and infrared astronomical instruments for telescopes literally all over the world. And he is currently leading efforts to build critical components of the giant Magellan Telescope. But today we'll primarily be discussing how the technology behind the ground-based hunt for exoplanets, or planets circling other sun-like stars, has progressed in the last quarter century. DePoy joins us from College Station, Texas. Darren, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Good afternoon, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. First off, let's take stock of how far ground-based extrasolar planet hunting has come since Mayer and Quelo first discovered 51 Pegasi b, a Jupiter-like planet around the sun-like star 51 Pegasi. We're going to discuss this in detail a bit later in the episode, but what are your initial thoughts? Because you were at the forefront of of this planet hunting effort 25 years ago. Well, we've come a long way in the past couple of decades, that's for sure. When I first started teaching introductory astronomy uh, nearly 30 years ago now, I would have to tell all the students that there weren't any planets known outside of our own solar system. Today, we know of many, many thousands. Let's go back to our first meeting 22 years ago. It was at Cerro Tololo International Observatory in Chile. And I was researching my book on extrasolar planets, Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, which is still in print, (laughs) I might add. I was here to interview you and your Ohio State team of observers and technicians at the Yale One Meter Telescope. You guys were looking for extrasolar planets via microlensing. We were there to install an instrument that would make uh, observations of ongoing gravitational microlensing events. And one of the goals was to use those observations to investigate whether there were planets around some of the lensing stars. As I write in my book, Einstein first postulated that given the right alignment among stars along our line of sight, a foreground star can bend and brighten light from a more distant background star, causing a ring-like image to form, known as microlensing, It's a natural manifestation of the relativity theory by which the foreground star, generally less luminous than the background star, acts as a gravitational lens. In other words, magnifying the background star's light over a period of several hours or weeks. There's a foreground star. The foreground star has mass. That mass causes the direction of travel of light to change, to bend. And so more of the light is bent from a background star, more of the light is bent so that we can see it from Earth. So the the background star appears to get a little brighter for a short period of time because the mass of the foreground star is causing more of the light to come to us. It only lasts for a brief, relatively brief time because the two stars are moving 
under the influence of the gravity from the rest of the galaxy. Um, so they're only aligned for a sh relatively short period of time. About 100 years or so ago, one of the first confirmations of general relativity was the observation that during a total eclipse of the sun, so the, the moon passes in front of the sun, the sky gets dark and you can see stars if you're in the right place on Earth during one of these events. And you can look at the positions of stars that are, of course, much further away than the sun. And the sun's mass will bend the direction of travel of the light from those stars. And they appear to be coming from a different place in the sky by a little bit, by a, the amount predicted by general relativity. It was quite a exciting thing to do. It was done by astronomers, um, as I say, about 100 years or so ago. So just tell us what happens in a, in a micro lens as we're observing it from Earth. Basically, you're looking at a star that's about 25,000 light years away. And a star that you really can't see, it's not very bright, but has mass, will pass by, kind of pass in front of that background star. That's the foreground star that's acting as the lens. The mass of that star then bends some of the light from the background star um, so that we can see it here on Earth. And you get a little extra light from the, from the background star. Later on, the, the two stars have kind of passed by each other and you don't, the, they go back to being what you saw initially. Um, but during the really accurate alignment, the very precise alignment of the two stars, the, the lensing will make the background star appear to be a little brighter or a bit brighter, can be very much brighter. Um, and you can't really see the, the ring-like shape that it takes due to the, the, the gravitational lensing because the size of that ring is very, very small. The, the, one of the reasons it's called gravitational microlensing is the alignment of the two stars needs, needs to be within one micro arc second. Remember that an arc second is one three thousand six hundredth of a degree. So it's a very, very tiny angular separation of the two stars when one of these events takes place. But I write in the book, A Distant Wanderer, since the first confirmation of a microlensing event in 1993, groups now routinely monitor the center of our galaxy for such phenomena, which are best seen from April to November from the southern hemisphere. At that time, Earth is aligned to see the foreground disk or spiral structure of the galaxy against its more distant central galactic bulge, the central hub of the Milky Way galaxy. And the chances of seeing such precise alignments are literally one in a million, which is why monitoring groups look at very crowded fields of stars at least one degree across. The chances that two stars align well enough to create a gravitational microlensing event is very small. And so you need to look at uh, a field of stars that has many millions of stars in it. Uh, you need to look at it every you know, hour or so every night for a very long, for months and months. And during that time, you will see a few chance alignments when a foreground object will pass in front of one of these background stars. So the richer, the denser, in, in a sense, of the, the field of stars you're looking at, the more likely it is. It still isn't very likely, though, and you still have to look at many millions of stars in order to have a reasonable chance of catching one of these microlensing events. It does happen, and, and uh, there's other physics, other astrophysics that you can do by using microlensing uh, events as probes of the universe. 
And so there's lots of interest in using them uh, for those pieces of astrophysics. So there are ongoing projects to look for, find, and announce um, the lensing events as they happen. And during the, that July of 1999, I also visited the Europe, European Southern Observatory's La Silla facility. I happened to uh, speak to one of your students at the time, I believe, whose name was Amy Stutz. Who was looking literally? She showed me this field of stars you just described on a computer screen. It, you know, it was twenty years ago, so I don't one hundred percent remember what Amy was doing. But <laughs> um, we all we all start to lose our memories eventually, I suppose. But I, I'm pretty I'm pretty confident what Amy was doing was she was looking at a field of stars where we already knew that there was a microlensing event going oh, on okay. from some of the search uh, search projects that were ongoing at that time. And, but she was observing it more often than the search teams were. Okay. So she was probably observing exactly the same field of stars over and over again every couple of minutes, all night, every night, because it, that that the cadence of the observations kind of sometimes dictates what kind of information you can get from the lensing events. Um, and when we were looking for planets, we needed to watch them, watch watch the events very frequently. That's probably what Amy was doing. And now, twenty something years later, uh, are you able to use AI software to to do this? Uh, yes, uh, yes, in a sense. Um, you know, uh, the I think the the micro the gravitational microlensing search teams have become very good at measuring the brightness of millions and millions of stars as they measure them every hour or two during the nights when the, the galactic bulge is, is available uh, to be seen from Chile during those months you mentioned. Uh, so it's generally speaking, it's a digital imaging system and a computer that's able to do this. You don't need too much uh, artificial intelligence to pick out the microlensing events. It's basically you're looking at many millions of stars monitoring their brightness and one of them will suddenly get very much brighter. That's how you identify when a microlensing event is taking place. Microlensing events typically involve a fainter, lower mass FG or K star. These are all basically sun-like stars, which are astrobiologically interesting for astronomers, acting as a lens for brighter and generally higher mass background stars. So a Jupiter-mass planet will generally create a spike in the microlens of a foreground star that will last for a day or two. But imagine that orbiting around that foreground star, the one that's creating the microlensing event, imagine that there's a planet. And if that planet happened, planets also have mass. And if the planet that's orbiting around that microlensing, the star that's creating the microlensing, um, happens to pass in front of the background star as well, then it creates an additional microlensing effect. That's how we find planets using microlensing is because those, there will be a planet orbiting around the foreground star and it creates a little extra microlensing and we can look for that. There's a very characteristic amount of brightening and a very characteristic shape of how it gets brighter um, and we can look for those things. Uh, unfortunately, uh, those events don't last for days or weeks. They last for only hours. So... If you're only looking at a star every night, for example, it's possible to find the microlensing event uh, in general, but you will generally miss all the microlensing planetary effects. So you have to look at these events very often, every few minutes really is what you want to do in order to characterize the, the planetary microlensing effect. And so that was what uh, 
Amy was probably doing. Uh, that's that's then. almost certain. Again, it was a long time ago, and and Amy is very active. Who knows what she was actually doing? <laughs> but I predict, yes, that's what she was doing. She was doing very time intensive observations of an ongoing gravitational microlensing um, event. I was just very impressed uh, to walk in. Uh, it was a beautiful night. For anyone who's not been to the to a professional observatory in the southern hemisphere, and you see you. you you see the the whole of the Milky Way and and the stars, and you walk in from outside into a control room, and you look at this. You look you're looking at thousands of stars on a computer screen. It's it's just overwhelming. It, it, it's kind of like one of those pinch me moments. So microlens observations though are still useful even today, 22 years later, for planet hunters trying to set parameters on the numbers of extrasolar planets. So this is going to be this is going to be one of my questions. You. You actually mentioned to me during our initial interview 22 years ago that you were kind of tired of hearing, you know, one-off discoveries of a hot Jupiter, a planet, a Jupiter-like planet in very short orbit around the sun-like stars, which are known as hot Jupiters, which were the first and the easiest type planets to discover by a different method of detection. And you, the whole, uh, the whole point behind these microlensing surveys were to get a quick snapshot. Uh, potentially how many Jupiter-like planets were out there circling sun-like stars. And Jupiter-like planets, as you know, are at 5 AU or 5 Earth-Sun distances and circle their stars, uh, what? I mean, our own Jupiter circles our, our sun uh, about every 12 years. Is, is that right? Something like that? Yes, that's, that's right. Yeah. And uh, so we used to think the paradigm among the celestial mechanics out there, was that Jupiter uh, kind of shielded the inner solar system from a lot of the of the impactors that potentially it could have could have uh, threatened the evolution of life on Earth. I think that paradigm has changed a bit. Well, I, I still think it's um, thought that you know Jupiter plays a role in helping to clean up the inner solar system and make the number of large, potentially destructive and catastrophic impacts on inner planets less frequent. See that today, I mean, not uh, only about 25 years ago, probably just uh, a few years prior to when you were in, in Chile, uh, when we first met, there we sat there at a telescope and watched a comet run into Jupiter. From the perspective of all of us here on Earth, we're much happier when the comet hits Jupiter than if it were to hit Earth, for example. <laughs> yeah, right. So, <laughs> you know, so at, at some level, having a large, massive object, something like Jupiter, which is a fairly massive object, out further in the solar system provides a bit of a shield. It provides a, a large amount of mass, a large amount of gravity that things can fall on instead of falling into the inner solar system and maybe having a chance to hit, hit us or hit an Earth-like planet that has burgeoning um, biology on it, I suppose. Uh, there have been um, a lot of changes, though, in how we think planetary systems form, how we think they evolve with time. That means that you know, sometimes uh, it's fairly clear at this point that a very large planet will get formed in the outer portions of a solar system early on in its history. And that planet won't stay there like Jupiter has stayed uh, at 5 AU, where it is now, um, for a long time. But they will move, and they will move in towards the star. 
that might be a fairly catastrophic thing to have happen. You know, might eject smaller planets out of the solar system altogether, for example. We don't know really for certain what our inner solar system looked like three billion years ago, you know, for instance. Uh, so maybe it may be more circular, more stable now than it, than it was three billion years ago. But what you're saying that early on in the history of our solar system, Jupiter may have acted as a gravitational magnet uh, to attract these large impactors to, to crash into Jupiter before they got to the inner solar system and could threaten nascent life on an Earth-like planet. But on the other hand, you're saying, by virtue of the fact that you, were ha that you have a Jupiter at a Jupiter-like distance, this thing can also start migrating in. And just like a bowling ball coming into, uh, uh, you know, uh, striking pins in the inner solar. Uh, I mean, if you, you imagine the planets are bowling pins, uh, it could pretty much wipe them out. But if Jupiter, you know, by dint of some perturbation to its orbit, starts to move into the so inner solar system, you know, we're not going to stay around for very long. And, and uh, <laughs> the gravitational impact of it will not be pleasant for us. Mm. So there's... Uh, I think there are, and what I think one of the things that we do today is we try to understand those kinds of dynamical effects. You know, how often do are they positive, and how often are they negative? That's the kind of research that goes on today. But interestingly enough, back to the microlensing, uh, I know that in the book that Einstein never believed microlensing would prove to be a practical astronomical <laughs> tool. <laughs> are are you surprised by that? I'm, I, I'm going to predict that he didn't say it would never be a useful tool, but he doubted it would be, be that it, because he almost certainly did the calculation correctly that showed that the likelihood that two stars would align well enough to create a microlensing effect is incredibly small. And he was 100% right about that. What changed between when Einstein's might have thought it was unlikely that we would ever actually detect a microlensing event and uh, and today is that the technology got much much better remember in uh, you know a hundred years or so ago or 75 years ago whenever it was that Einstein was making these kinds of predictions we didn't have uh, digital cameras and computers to analyze the data from them and now we do and uh, you know as you say in in the early 90s um, when digital imaging and astronomy started to really take off and become a very uh, common and popular kind of technique that was coupled by computers becoming much faster, much more powerful so that we could analyze the data, measure the brightness. So you could use digital imaging to go and measure the brightnesses of millions of stars every few minutes and you could use computers to go in and analyze those digital images and measure the brightness of each and every one of those stars every few minutes and keep up with that kind of data flow. That would have been just impossible to do when Einstein was around. Um, you know, there, was no, there were no digital imagers, there were no real computers. So he was right, back in his day, there simply wasn't the technology to, to, to do the kind of observations that were necessary to have the, a chance of seeing a gravitational microlensing event. Um, and that's what's been developed um, starting in the in the 80s and early 90s. That's that that kind of technology became available to us. So why were you actually at the Yale one meter? We realized early on that although gravitational microlensing itself um, is very uh, color independent in the sense that 
the microlensing effect treats all photons at all wavelengths equally. So in the optical or the near-infrared or any other wavelength, the microlensing effect is the same. However, we realize that stars themselves are not the same color um, across their whole face. You know, the sun is a little cooler on the very outer limb than it is in the middle. And as the planets and other um, stars would create the microlensing events, they would magnify different pieces of the, the stars at different times. So that if we could measure microlensing effects at two different wavelengths at once, so let's say one optical and one in near infrared wavelength, we could uh, extract additional information from the microlensing uh, light curves. And so we built a, a special instrument that could look at a field of stars where a microlensing event was going on at one optical and one near-infrared wavelength at once and then extract those the color information that was intrinsically interesting about the events. And so the name yeah. of that instrument was AndyCam, right? A novel, That's right. Uh, a novel double imaging camera. We, we, we could build an instrument at Ohio State, but we needed a telescope to put it on. And it turns out that astronomy is a very collaborative field. We knew lots of people and we knew people at Yale who were interested in also observing a completely different kind of object in the optical and the near infrared. Um, one of our collaborators named Charles Balin. And he kind of together with some astronomers from Portugal who were also interested in doing uh, colors of different variable objects, uh, we formed a collaboration, a consortium that went to run that one meter telescope. Also, the one meter telescope was a good size for, it was a big enough telescope to do the kind of measurements that we needed to do. And so uh, we all agreed that we, Ohio State would create the instrument. The telescope kind of belonged to Yale and the Portuguese astronomy community could add some support funding and some also additional science uh, motivation for the project. And we would all put our, our strengths together to create this new kind of uh, monitoring capability. At Ohio State, we went off and built the instrument. It was um, an imaging system, an imaging camera that, uh, that operated at two different wavelengths at once, which was a fairly new kind of instrument for astronomy. That's why it's novel. There's an imaging camera that did two wavelengths. That's why it's double. I'll be honest and tell you, there was also another astronomer who was helping to drive the entire project whose name was Andy. And so we pretty much named it after him. <laughs> and that was Andy uh, Gould? Andy Gould, that's right. Okay, who was also at Ohio State. At that time, right, he was also a, a professor at Ohio State. Okay. Uh, in Distant Wanderers, I quote you as saying, I think we're going to find that no more than 10% of stars like the sun are going to have planetary systems that resemble our own. I do think that finding out how many stars out there that have Jupiters or planets like Earth is a very profound question. So what are your thoughts on that today? Well, uh, you know, it's always dangerous to be told what you said 20 years ago and find out if you're <laughs> correct a, or not. But that's the fun part about journalism is to quote yeah, back what you know. It, it, anyway, go ahead. So, so I will say that uh, I still think that's a very profound question. And, and really, if you expanded a little bit to ask, well, how many stars have solar systems that are like our own? you know, a large planet that maybe is doing some shielding of a smaller Earth-like planet that perhaps has biology on it. I still think that's a very profound, uh, very interesting question to ask. It, it sort of plays at 
um, you know, incredibly important issues about our place in the entire universe. I will say that uh, being an astronomer, when I say something like 10%, generally what I tell my graduate schools, uh, well, I tell my graduate students, is that when I say 10%, what I really mean is not 1% and not 100%. Um, and so in that sense, I think I probably hit it about right that I think what we've demonstrated over the past couple of decades is that solar systems, planetary systems like our own, you know, they're not rare, but they're also not incredibly common. They're something like 10 or 20% of the stars that we see in the sky um, have, you know, large-ish Jupiter-like planets, um, a few to, a, to five to six or seven or eight AU from their parent stars. Whether they have Earth mass planets closer in, I think that's still kind of an open question. We don't know about very many Earth mass planets, particularly not around stars that are too much like the sun. But it's starting to look like some some fraction of stars that's of order 10%, again, not 1% and not 100% really is what that means. Might be 20%, might be 5%, something like that. Um, probably is about right. Uh, we know there's some, um, some kind of planets around many, many stars, but many of those systems do not look at all like ours. So the, the ones that do look like ours are a somewhat smaller fraction. People are probably wondering why so many ast uh, astronomical observatories are built in Chile, and we're always going to people are always going to Chile. I did a story on on this uh, for Forbes a few years back, and I noted that the coast of Chile is inherently suited to optical astronomy because it has very dry northern deserts which border a lengthy coastline. It has a Humboldt current sometimes for, referred to as the Peru Current, which is a 550-mile-wide cold ocean current, which actually comes up from Antarctica. It flows from, uh, from south to north along the coast, if I'm not incorrect. And its, uh, in, it's temperatures keep Chile's northern desert air even drier. Yeah, all, all that is correct. Chile is um, perhaps the finest place on, on, the, on Earth, basically, to do astronomy. Um, because of that current that you mentioned, um, because Chile also has a very large number of isolated high mountain peaks, um, it's a great place to put ground-based observatories, ground-based telescopes. And so there's a lot, just a tremendous amount of astronomy, uh, astronomical activity in Chile. Um, an, an easy way to say it is that it just never rains there. So in the northern part of Chile, just the, the desert is the one of the driest places on Earth. Uh, very little uh, vegetation, and then it's very high as well because of the Andes. Um, so there's hundreds and hundreds of just excellent um, ground-based astronomical observatory sites in northern Chile. So let's uh, let's take a look, a broader look at uh, the other methods of detecting planets. If you could just kind of in the late sure. by the late nineties, astronomers were basically, if I'm not incorrect, using four techniques to look for exoplanets around sun-like stars, and we're not talking about the uh, the pulsar planets, which probably had a different formation mechanism than than the planets that we're looking for. Uh, we're looking for planets around sun-like stars. So, in other words, uh, there were there was microlensing, which we have just described. And then there was a technique known as Doppler spectroscopy, or the measurement of radial velocities. There was astrometry, uh, the movement of stars 
across our line of sight. And then the transit method. Uh, You're looking at a stellar dimming caused by a planet moving across the face of its star. Can you uh, give us a little bit better explanation than I just did of each of those techniques? Doppler spectroscopy was the way that the very first planets were seen. And it's a relatively straightforward thing as a sort of imagine you've got a star and a planet that orbits around it. Well, just as the planet is pulled on by the star, and that's what keeps it in its orbit, as the planet orbits around the the star itself, the planet pulls on the star a little bit, sort of called a reflex motion. As the planet orbits around the star, the star is also kind of orbiting as well. It's moving around under the the gravitational pull of the of the planet. Now that's of course a, a relatively small amount. The planets move are much less massive than stars generally, and so they're moving a lot more faster. But the star does move as well. And so if you're watching a star very carefully and you're measuring how fast it's moving relative to you, you can see it moving under the influence of the star. It will move back and forth along our line of sight. That's called the radial velocity motion or the radial velocity change in the star. And you can measure that. Um, The very first planets that were uh, seen in the mid-90s by Mayor and Kilius, for example, that's the the technique they used. The amount of motion that's in the star is just kind of mind-bogglingly small. The kind of velocities we're talking about are tens or 100 meters per second. Uh, as I like to say, you know, if you watch the Olympics, uh, people can run at a rate of about 10 meters per second. So we're watching a star that might be hundreds of light years away move at velocities under the influence of the gravitational pull of their their planets um, at that level, at the at the level of tens of meters per second let's say there's a Jupiter-like planet, and these were the ones that we were the most sensitive to initially with this method. Uh, So you basically, you're getting a radial velocity uh, along our line of sight. In other words, the telescope's on Earth, you're looking at a star. Is it blue shifting towards us or red shifting away from us? You get the measurement using spectroscopy. You have what is known as a fiducial, if I remember correctly, which is just a I, is it iodine? What is it? A line of, of iodine that you compare the actual measurements to to, to see how it, if it's moving towards or away from us? Yeah, so, so sometimes the star will be a little red-shifted because the planet's pulling it away from us. Sometimes it'll be a little blue-shifted because the planet's on the other side and pulling it towards us. And as the planet orbits around the star, it'll go between red-shifted and blue-shifted and red-shifted and blue-shifted and red-shifted and blue-shifted. And we can watch that periodic variation in the radial velocity of the star, and that's a signal that there's a planet there. And also now, determine the orbit. You, you mentioned a, well, you mentioned a, an iodine cell. That's one of the tex- techniques used to, when you observe a star spectroscopically, to very precisely measure what the wavelengths of some of the um, absorption lines in the in the stellar spectrum uh, are, and that's how you get the radial velocity. There are other techniques that are being used now, but that's a, a very standard and, and at this point almost traditional one. So you use that iodine as a, as a line of comparison to the actual stellar measurements. And That's right. You, and, pass the, you pass the stellar light through a cell filled with iodine gas 
that imprints iodine absorption features on that spectrum, and you can use those to calibrate the wavelengths very precisely. Okay. And uh, what people probably don't realize is that if we were, what, 30 light years away, we were alien civilization using Doppler, spec Doppler spectroscopy on our own sun, we would see the barycentric reflex motion caused by our own Jupiter. If, if there's another civilization off on a different uh, star somewhere, positioned just right, looking at the sun, as Jupiter orbits around the sun, they could tell that there was a planet there. They could tell that Jupiter was there because the sun would be moving towards them or away from them in reflex motion um, as Jupiter orbits around the sun. Now, the amount of that velocity shift from Jupiter is is relatively small. It's, only, it, it's about, again, about 10 meters per second. And the period only happens, you know, with the period of the planet as it goes around the sun. So that whole change, that 10 meter per second um, change in the velocity of the sun relative to this alien civilization far away happens on a period of every once every 12 years because that's how long it takes Jupiter to go all the way around the sun so you have to have some patience so you um, you, you you literally have to observe six of those years to get half the orbit to make to that's make right the, yeah okay that's right and and so astrometry uh explain how you can find planets around stars using astrometry well, so, so it's, it's basically the same, the same thing, if you think about it for a minute. What's going on there is instead of measuring the radial velocity of the, sun, of the star, watching its motion change, how fast it's moving under the gravitational influence of the planet, astrometry just means you're watching the star move in the sky. So on, in one half of the orbit of the planet, it's pulling it one way. In the other half of the orbit, pulling it a different way, just like with the, the velocity change. But if it's big enough, and maybe if the star is close enough to us, you can actually see the star move on the sky by a small amount. Um, it's, its position in the sky, it's called its, um, its coordinates, for example, it's called the, the astrometric position of the star. You can, see that, you can see that change in the same kind of periodic way as you can see the radial velocities. Um, changing, but this again is across our line of sight. So, in other words, you have to come. The difficult the astrometry is difficult. If I have gotten this correct, because you really have to compare one star, get its position with a lot of different other stars, like at least six, I think, to be able yeah. uh, to get a good fix on it. And it's not easy. It's very painstaking. Uh, yeah. So, so astrometry is incredibly difficult because the motions, the angular shifts of the stars, is incredibly small. And so you have to pick out some stars that are very far away and aren't moving at all and maybe even use external galaxies somehow to set your astrometric coordinate grid, if you will. And then you watch the star move relative to that uh, and the, the motions are very, very small. So that's a, that's a really tough measurement to make, actually much tougher than uh, Doppler spectroscopy. And the early asteroid hunters... Uh, found the first asteroids by using astrometry. And it was a lot easier than doing the kind of astrometry you're talking about, right? Oh, absolutely right, because asteroids are in our own solar system. So they're, uh, they move much, much more. Okay. So, and then the transit method. Uh, give us a, like a little summary of that. So the transit method, again, uh, pretty straightforward. If you sort of imagine uh, you're looking at a star 
and a planet, and a planet around that star that's orbiting around that star, just every now and then passes between us and the planet and the star. So the planet occults the the star, just like the moon occults the sun every now and then, um, and it blocks out some of the light from the star. So if you're sitting there measuring the brightness of this star very precisely, and every now and then, every on a periodic basis, it gets a little fainter. Um, and you sort of watch that happen over and over and over again on a, at a very fixed period, that's the signal that a planet is going in front of the star and that you're seeing it transit across the face of the, of the parent star. And that's actually the method that most planets have been found with. And that's a method that the uh, NASA's Kepler Space Telescope used and also the method that the uh, TESS, uh, NASA's TESS uh, spacecraft the transiting exoplanet survey satellite is using. TESS is still operational, still finding planets. Uh, Kepler was a, was a great success, found lots and lots of uh, transits. Right now, about three-quarters of the uh, roughly 4,500 planets that are known uh, that have been confirmed were found with uh, the transit method. M- many of, most of them, in fact, found by Kepler. And so there actually is one that I left out, and that's direct imaging. And I guess because when I wrote my book, uh, that was such a far-fetched <laughs> kind of, uh, the technology just wasn't there. But that's good to know that direct imaging of an exoplanet is now possible. Tell us what that is. So that's really very simple. You just take a picture, and you see the planet orbiting the star. Um, it's very difficult because, of course, the separation between the planet and the star is very small. The angles involved are, are tiny. Also, the brightness of the planet relative to the star is very, very small. It's, it's a million or even a billion times less bright than the sun, than the star that it orbits around. So you have to be very careful to shield the light from the star. You have to have very high angular resolution observations. But as technology gets built and, and developed and proven, I think uh, you know direct imaging is a technique that will find more and more planets um, in the future. So today, actually, uh, an international team of astronomers report in the journal Nature that they have made the first detection of an isotope in the atmosphere of an exoplanet. Uh, in this case, the gas giant TYC 8998-760-1b at a distance. What a name. I think somebody <laughs> needs to go back to Greek mythology or something for this one. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, and a, just, just, just as an aside, <laughs> names in astronomy used to be beautiful and poetic, and we kind of moved away from that when there got to be so many things that we couldn't be poetic anymore. So now they just have telephone numbers. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Not very so anyway, this one lies at a distance of 300 light years in the constellation Musca. Uh, and again, Chile figured in this one as the measurement was made with the European Southern Observatory's very large telescope in the Atacama Desert. Um, they find that the planet, they find this planet to be rich in carbon-13, and the astronomers were able to distinguish carbon-13 from carbon-12 because it absorbs radiation in slightly different colors. So... Can you explain what an isotope is of, a, of an element? An isotope, of, so uh, uh, we call an element something like carbon or oxygen or whatever, um, basically by the number of protons that it has in its nucleus. So if you call something carbon, 
that means it has six protons in its nucleus. Here on Earth, that means it also has six electrons orbiting around it. And the interaction of those electrons that are orbiting around the nucleus with other atoms, uh, other elements, that's called chemistry um, here on Earth. Now, out in the rest of the universe, um, elements don't always have the same number of electrons and protons in them. So other kinds of chemistry can happen. Um, but also, uh, both here on Earth and out in the rest of the universe, sometimes in, you know, a, instead of having the same number of protons and neutrons, like carbon-12, which has six protons and six neutrons, you'll have an extra neutron um, on the, on the, or one less, and that's called an isotope. So the, uh, the element itself is named by the number of protons. The isotope of the element is given by the total number of protons plus neutrons. Um, and those aren't always the same. So carbon-12 is made up of six protons and six neutrons uh, in the nucleus of the, of the atom. And carbon-13 is six protons and seven neutrons. And, and so, that, and, well, that extra particle in the, in the, in the, in the nucleus creates a slightly different set of energy levels for the orbiting electrons that are there. And you can see when that element absorbs some light that it happens at a slightly different wavelength than for carbon-12. That's called the isotopic shift in the spectrum of the, of the element. And so what do you see as most significant about this paper, about this detection? Well, so here in our solar system, the ratio of the number of carbon-13 atoms to the number of carbon-12 atoms, I believe, is around 90, um, pretty much everywhere we look. Out in the interstellar medium, that's the space between stars and in the big uh, clouds of gas and dust where stars form, that number is generally around 60. And I think what this paper saw was that the number of, their, their estimate is that the based on their measurements, is that the ratio of carbon-13 to carbon-12 is more like uh, uh, 1 to 30. So it's significantly different from both our solar system and the interstellar medium. That is saying something about how the planets formed um, and where they formed in the, early, in the early nebula that existed around the star and the kinds of processes that took place during the formation of the planet. So it's giving us information about the formation of the planet, which is you know something that we're you know we're obviously very interested in. And it's pretty amazing that that a at 300 light years away you can detect this uh, you know isotopic difference in an atmosphere of an extrasolar planet, and it's not it's a it's a gas giant. You know, there's not going to be life as we know it there, but it's still fascinating. And it, and as you said, it's giving us information about the formation of of planets around a star that uh, that is totally totally alien from our own. Yeah, I mean, it, again, uh, one of the things we found out right away when we first started detecting planets was that there were planets out there, but they were in systems that were very unlike our own. And you yourself are involved in another Chilean telescope telescope project, uh, the Giant Magellan Telescope. Uh, which is due to be built at the Las Campanas Observatory in Chile. And you are actually uh, developing instrumentation that would allow astronomers or observers to make detailed uh, studies of the atmospheres of potentially exo-Earths 
from uh, around sun-like stars? So I left Ohio State about 10 years or so ago and moved to Texas A&M. One of the reasons was that Texas A&M is one of the founding partners in this giant Magellan telescope. It's a 25-meter diameter telescope being built in Chile, as, as you said. And we're developing instrumentation um, to use both on the giant Magellan telescope, but also on other telescopes and until that one gets built, to go off and start measuring the atmospheres of the exoplanets that we know about. I think the, the giant Magellan telescope and the other extremely large telescopes in the next generation of, of big telescopes that we're trying to build will really extend the whole field of exoplanet studies. And, and really, I think the growth field, and this is just my opinion, of course, but one of the growth fields in exoplanet studies is understanding their atmospheres and the dispersion, the differences in the atmospheres between what we see here in our own solar system and what's going on, um, on the, in these other exoplanets. And that will, again, uh, allow us to better understand how those, um, those systems formed, what, how they evolved, what they're like, um, and maybe someday you know, help us pin down which ones have some biology on them, for example. Uh, and, and this giant Magellan telescope is is a uh, is made up of seven seven different components. It's, it's 25 meters in total diameter, but it's segmented in in that it, it is composed of seven different 8.4 meter primary mirrors. There's seven 8.4 meter primary mirrors that all function together as one large 25 meter diameter primary mirror. But it is but the segments themselves, yes, you're right, are 8.4 meters uh, in diameter. And to date, uh, I believe you have something on the order of $500 million committed. It's a billion-dollar project. And we hope to raise the other half of the money um, so that we keep so we can get the telescope completed. And what happened with – I assume that when you started this project, you thought that you had the funding in order, or what happened? <laughs> did, uh, not, to, not to put you on the spot, but what happened? I mean, did uh, – did, did somebody just say, "Hey, we got enough ground-based telescopes"? We're not because I've been hearing, I've, I've been reading articles about the Giant Magellan Telescope literally for two decades. Uh, yes, that's right. It's been being planned and being worked on uh, for about twenty years. Um, predates my involvement with it by uh, by about ten years. Basic problem is that these things are extremely expensive, and finding a billion dollars to do astronomy is difficult. Um, so, the, so the funding progress. was not in, was the funding not in place when they started the project? I mean, if if what you're asking has there ever been a room full of a billion dollars to build the telescope, the answer <laughs> is no. <laughs> I mean, that's what everybody would like. Uh, you know, what you'd really like in all projects is the day you start, um, somebody comes in and fills a room up with money that's enough <laughs> to do the that's what you really want. Believe me, I, I know that very well. That's true on every. That's true when I, you know, when I up when I replace all my landscaping in my house. I wish there was that room that I could just walk into and take all the money I wanted out of it. Um, <laughs> oh, but that you know is is hardly ever what actually happens. Unfortunately, it's a much longer and more complicated um, process of raising the money to build something that's this expensive. So the um, so the field of dreams model of if we build it they will come, <laughs> the money will come is that's not an unusual paradigm. 
for, for? Oh no, I think that's pretty common actually, particularly <laughs> in astronomy. You know, you build as much of it as you can, and then you hope that other people get involved and give you some more money, and you build some more of it, and you kind of bootstrap your way along. I think the the GMT has been doing that pretty successfully. It has made great progress. I think you know there's been a lot of design work, a lot of prototyping um, for the telescope. Uh, we're we're well ahead of many of the other extremely large telescope projects because we've actually made um, many of our mirrors. Right, we've we're, we have cast and polished. Um, we've completely finished one of the set, so one seventh of all the optics are done for the GMT. Others have been cast and are being ground and polished as even now. Um, we're on good, um, that, and that's one of the limiting steps in getting the thing built is getting all the mirrors built. They're non-trivial uh, in themselves. Uh, but there's also been a lot of good work uh, done on the mirror support system, the building, the, um, the site. Um, you know, if it hadn't been for COVID, I think there would have been a, a large concrete pier on top of a mountain in, near Las Campanas already built um, that will eventually have the telescope mounted on it. So there's been a lot of work and it's going, I think, more slowly than um, most people involved in the project wish. I think that's kind of always true for all these sorts of large projects, of course. It's not like the time has been lost. It's really been used to good effect to make the telescope, when it does get complete, a stronger, more useful thing. And so uh, you have a ballpark target date for first light? <laughs> well, that's a that's you know one of those kinds of questions that 15 years from now you can come back and ask me if I was right. <laughs> um, I I hope it's done you know roughly by the end of the decade. Okay. Whether that happens or not is is kind of unknown. At this point in my life, I just hope that I'm uh, you know still alive when it gets built and I can use it to do some interesting science. Okay. So what doesn't the general public appreciate about professional ground-based astronomy so that's a it's a it's an interesting question um i suspect that that most people in the public thinks think that astronomers you know spend their nights staring through a telescope with their eye and glorying at the beauty of the night sky or something like that when in fact what we actually do all day every day is just sit in a chair staring at a computer screen analyzing data building computer models, writing computer code, things like that. It's a very technical computer-based kind of field. Um, and we blend physics with uh, all the other kind of statistical analysis tools, big data tools. Um, you know, one of the things we're leading in astronomy right now, for example, is being able to take terabytes and terabytes of data and reduce it down to the result that we want. So we're really involved in big data kinds of projects and statistical analysis of big data results and things is really very, very important right now. So it's a, it's a, it's not the kind of field that I think a lot of people think it is. It's not a uh, look at the sky and wonder how beautiful and, and note how beautiful it is and enjoy that kind of field. It's really a very, computer-oriented, hard work um, kind of thing. Now, having said that, I will admit that almost every night I've ever been observing at a telescope and the weather's nice, I do take a couple of minutes and go outside and just stare up at the night sky with my eyes and think it's pretty awesome to be able to do this with my life. I've observed you know, many hundreds of nights in Chile and I'm still just blown away on a, you know, on a night without the moon, um, 
isolated from any kind of civilization in the middle of a standing standing outside on the top of a mountain in northern Chile and just staring up at the sky and seeing the the Milky Way blazing across uh, right overhead, uh, the Magellanic clouds, which are obvious and easy to see, uh, Omega Sen, which is a, a relatively nearby cluster of stars. It's just, it's just unbelievable sometimes, and and certainly one of the the best things about being astronomers having the opportunity to do that. So what uh, do you think about personally when you look up at a clear night sky? Um, I'll say almost always when I'm doing that is I'm thinking about the problems I'm encountering with a bulky piece of equipment or a telescope that's not working or wondering why it is that the, you know, the fixed pattern noise on my digital detector is not what I expected it to be. Um, but I do try to take a deep breath and, and look and realize that we actually can measure things that are just unbelievably far away and we can do it in a quantitative way and, and we can apply the physics that we know from here on earth to understand how those things got to be the way they are. That I find pretty fascinating and uh, kind of keeps me off the streets, as I say. Darren, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more. <laughs> well, my my sons will tell you that I have no social media presence whatsoever. <laughs> uh, however, uh, the, even they know that they can always contact me via email. So my email address is um, on the web at my uh, the Texas A&M Physics and Astronomy Department uh, website, and I'm always happy to answer email questions. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Darren DePoy, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of the tech driving the hunt for exoplanets. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. It was a, it was a pleasure. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.